Square Peg Podcast. Commencing Season 2. Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started, as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now a word from our sponsor. That's right, we have sponsors now. Have you experienced pain in your lower extremities, even your hips or lower back after standing or walking? Your feet may not fit in your shoes or on the ground properly. Soulman Foot Insoles, with 30 years experience making people's feet feel more comfortable, can help. Henry Soulman Veloz is the official insole provider for UTEP Athletics and has made custom insoles for my athletic, casual, dress shoes, and work boots for 15 years now. You can find him on Facebook at Soulman Custom Foot Insoles or you can call him at 915-241-2153. That is S-O-L-E-M-A-N Custom Foot Insole on Facebook and call him 915-241-2153. My guest today is a native of Las Cruces, New Mexico. He's a metalhead and a purveyor of fine jewelry as he towers over his customers, standing six foot nine inches. Jose Chaparro, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. I, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you give your intro, and I've listened to your show before, and I think to myself, why did he call me? Oh, we're going to find that out here pretty soon. <laughs> and you know what's so funny is I, I so because you're you go by your real name on Facebook. But uh, I, when I think of you in my head, when I talk to you, it's never Jose. Nobody calls you Jose, do they? Is everybody's called you Hoser or Hoser the Hitman? Or it, it, it's funny. It depends on what part of my life you met me at. Um, my oldest friends all call me by my full name. It's almost you know it makes me cringe a little bit because I think my mom's mad and she's calling me to you know beat me or something. So you know my first name is Jose Juan. My parents got creative with a hyphen. Um, and then I got to junior high, and it turned, you know, well, we can't say that, so we're going to call you Hoser. So I became Hoser, and I've been Hoser for the last, gosh, I'll be 50 in two years, so easily 35 years, if not longer. Um, but, yeah, it, it, again, it depends on where you know me from. If you go shopping in the store, it's Jose, but everywhere else it's Hoser. And, that, and you know, I've embraced it. I love the name, and, uh, you know, that's my alias. In fact, I do freak out when people call me Jose sometimes. It's just like, uh-oh, am I in trouble again? Well, not to be confused with uh, the nickname bandied about a lot of times in my wife's homeland of Canada. Uh, you are not H-O-S-E-R. You are H-O-Z-E-R. Yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, when they say when you can't beat them, join them. I, uh, in the beginning, the first time people started calling me Hoser, I absolutely hated it. Um, but, you know, nicknames, once they catch on and everybody starts, it, it, I, I want to say within three days when somebody gave me the nickname Hoser, everybody was calling me Hoser. So after about two weeks of that, and it's, you know, you can't threaten to beat everybody up every day. You just finally embrace it. And I thought, well, if this is going to be my me, if this is what everybody's going to call me, that I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to spell it the way I want to spell it. And uh, despite spelling it the way I spell it, uh, spell it for the last you know thirty some odd years, people still spell it J O S E R, and it's like, no, it's H O Z E R. It's mine. Let me spell it the way I want to spell it. But you know, I, it I'm is, Hoser. That's it, all I can say. It is what it is. And 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 where did we get Hoser the Hitman? 
Um, that was a moniker given to me by uh, Casey Counts when I took over the Sunday evening and evenings at uh, 101 Gold. Um, she, you know, I'd gone on uh, when I started at the Rocket. Uh, Linz, if you're in the background, thank you. I, gosh, the greatest year of my life. Um, but after that went away, uh, Lindsay said, or not Lindsay, excuse me, Casey said, you know, we got to give you a, a new persona. And she goes, hey, why not Hoser the Hitman because he plays all the hits. And that's where that came from. Man, that is, um, you know, if you ever decided to go the, the, the Lucha Libre mount, the route um, or the pro wrestling mount, that you've got your, uh, you've got your, 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 your nickname or your, your gimmick all, uh, all worked out for you, don't you? Pretty much, but, uh, you know, almost 50, uh, I, you know, having, having watched wrestling, I haven't really, you know, watched wrestling in, in decades, but, you know, even the overweight guys are in much better shape than I could ever hope to be in my entire life. So that, that's a whole level of, uh, shape insanity that I couldn't even, you know, especially now I couldn't even get into. It's just like, I'll let the professionals do their thing and, uh, just pretend I maybe, you know, I, there, there might have been once or twice in visiting Mexico City where, you know, see, sí, see, sí, soy luchador de, de los Estados Unidos, but, you know, it didn't get me anything. Didn't get you anything. <laughs> you know, Hoser, as you know, I, I have a habit of uh, falling into this, you know, really kind of going real chronological and biographical, and I'm going to try a little something different, um, something everybody's we we've been dealing with, of course, we're in the middle of a, a, a worldwide pandemic of something that's potentially uh, deadly, especially for people in, in, in certain groups. Um, how, ha- how have you dealt with it? How has COVID and the shutdowns and the restriction, all that, altered your life? You know, um, obviously, as we all get older, our social lives tend to diminish to an extent. So to say that, oh, well, it really killed my bar scene, um, me and my, my closest friends in the world, we get together once a month, or we're getting to get together once a month, and we'd have a beer and laugh and be stupid and, uh, you know, go on our separate ways. When COVID started, the only real effect that it had on me would have been business-wise. Uh, like everybody else in March, uh, we had to shut down, so we shut down for, you know, about three months. But as far as personal-wise, um you know, it's me and the dog, I always say. I, You know, it, it didn't necessarily affect me that bad. Uh, a lot of the, you know, obviously not going to the bars anymore once a month, but my friends and I still keep in touch via text, via phone. We, you know, we call each other and uh, make each other laugh or whatever. And uh, store-wise, of course, uh, we right away when they did open us all back up, uh, we stayed stuck to the mandate. You have to wear a mask um, in the the nature of my business, you know, we have people come in, they have to take off their mask really quickly so the cameras can see who they are because, you know, how many, uh, <laughs> it's not a good idea to have masked wearing people coming into a jewelry store when you've got millions of dollars of inventory. But, you know, again, did it affect business? Yeah, just the shutdown. We, we were able to do, uh, we did lose selling uh, a lot of sales, but what we did gain was a lot of uh, repairs. People were, you know, cool enough to drive by. We were doing, um, curbside service, basically like the restaurants, hey, you know, I need a battery, I, my ring's too small, my ring's too big, we'd go out there, you know, wearing our protective gear and, and do whatever we needed to do. So business-wise, yeah, it slowed things down a little bit, but it was nothing that we, um, as a staff, not a single one of us, uh, you know, ever complained. Uh, personally, getting used to the masks and going outside, uh, I don't understand why people aren't embracing this more. Um, 
it's a little kid's dream. How many, you know, you've got two, you know, lovely daughters, and I'm sure there's days where they want to, you know, when they were younger, that they wanted to stay dressed up as a princess all day long. I mean, this is cool. I get to wear a mask all day long. People don't know that I didn't brush my teeth. So, you know, again, <laughs> the, the full effect, it didn't really, it, it's been a little inconvenient, but I don't think it's been to the point where I feel that my rights are being taken away, that uh, that it's really, really affected my life. I, you know, I, I still talk to everybody I love and care about, and, uh, you know, I'm fine. Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot to dis- to be discussed about that with shutdowns in schools and things like that but i think you and i are pretty much in the same place with regard to for the love of god all we're asking you to do is put a piece of cloth over your nose and mouth when you're not inside your house and um, right. you know exactly. that 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 apparently is difficult for some people and i don't want to go down that rabbit hole of course right, right. but um you know now that we're t- kind of talking about you you started talking a little bit about how how this has affected you and how it affects your work Let's stay on that. You, uh, you're a jeweler. I mean, what do you call? You're a jeweler. Is that the term? Uh, no, a jeweler. Technically, a jeweler is somebody who actually makes, manufactures, repairs jewelry. Uh, my ex-wife is a fantastic jeweler, uh, and she's the one who got me into the sales part. I've always been, uh, and, and you've known me for a few years. I, I've got a big mouth, and I can I can talk and gab. So um, I was more on the sales end. So I am a, what you would call an accredited jewelry professional. And I've actually taken classes. It's like a, a class that would teach you, okay, this is a diamond. This is a sapphire. This is a ruby. Okay, but it goes beyond more than that. What is a diamond? What is a sapphire? What is a ruby? And I don't mean in a existential philosophical point, but, you know, chemically, microscopically, atomically, how are these stones different? How do you present these stones? How do you, you know, and so you kind of get a, a basic knowledge of the jewelry manufacturing process. You get a basic knowledge of what stones are, why they're valuable, what it is to look for. And so I guess, you know, I would be more of a, on a gemologist side than, and sales than an actual jeweler. Well, let me so, throw, let, let me throw a couple, couple of terms at you because I took uh, a couple of semesters of geology when I was in college and, um, there are two two of the things that come to mind when you talk start talking about these different types types of rocks. If you tell me which of these you've heard of, the Mohs scale of hardness and the Bowen yes. reaction series. Um, the Mohs scale of hardness we talk about all the time. Uh, when you're trying to explain to somebody, um, well, hey, I really want uh, an emerald as a pinky ring. My job is going to be to tell you, look, emeralds are gorgeous stones, but you really don't want it as a pinky ring. Well, why not? If you notice, anytime you set your hand down, you bang your pinky. You know, it's not that you slam your hand down. But the reason we try and steer people away from, like, uh, I would say emeralds, uh, opals, as far as, you know, stones that are going to be, how do I put this, more exposed to damage, we try and talk people out of it. Why emeralds are very brittle. Opals are very brittle. So, you know, our job is kind of to guide you to what you want to what, we know what you want. You tell us what you want. And from there, we kind of tell you pros and cons as to why you should or shouldn't. How does the Mohs scale come into that? Well, diamond is a 10 on the Mohs scale. The next one down is going to be corundum or sapphire. But the difference in strength really and truly is almost, uh, if you were to put it on a graph, it would be almost a mile of difference between how hard a sapphire is and then you get way a mile away to a diamond. So that kind of gives us a guide as to, hey, okay, you know, an emerald is like a three on the most scale, 
it's a gorgeous stone. Wear it on your middle fingers where it's not going to be exposed to much damage. Or, you know, hey, a sapphire, if you want to wear it as a pinky ring, that's a great stone. It's going to take, you know, all kinds of abuse without shattering, without breaking. So, you know, that's how we use the most scale. The next one, uh, the other term that you used, it's not something I'm familiar with in the jewelry world. Now, the, the, least, the, yeah. the Bowen Reaction Series, if I remember correctly, uh, is just a, it's a chart that talks about what uh, what uh, ele- or, um, what minerals are formed at what temperature. So you know, right. so basically along those lines. Now it's it's funny you mentioned a pinky ring. Does anybody wear pinky rings besides mafiosi? Um, yes, I do. <laughs> well, your hose are the hitman, so yeah, I mean, hose are the hitman. So I've got to push it. Uh, yeah, we we do have a lot of. Uh, it, it's kind of coming back. Um, you know, and it's, it's everybody. We'll have uh, guys walking in with a Rolex who, you know, want some nice, really gold diamond pinky ring. Or, you know, you'll get some guy coming in and say, hey, you know, I just want something to wear on my pinky where it's going to be kind of out of the way and fashionable. What do you have? Uh, ladies, of course, you know, uh, ladies encounter the, the problem of not having enough fingers for all the rings they want to wear. Of course. So uh, <laughs> it's never going to be a problem with a lady wanting a pinky ring. But for guys, it, it's always been kind of a little bit of a fashion statement um in my 15 16 plus years of being in the jewelry business um men really don't buy a lot of uh, a lot of jewelry for themselves and very rarely do their girlfriends wives uh sanchas ever buy them jewelry but you know guys when they do buy jewelry it's always something incredibly specific and they know you know and pinky rings is one of those things their great grandfather or their granddad had one and they're like you know what it looked really cool on my granddad I want to, you know, I want to do something like that. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that you wear a pinky ring, and I'll have to tell you, you know, as much as I do consider you a friend, obviously the overwhelming majority of our our interaction since we've known each other has been, uh, you know, on social media uh, or me calling into the radio station when you were working, uh, you know, at Bravo Mike. Um, mm. I'm trying to think that you you do wear a pinky ring. I would guess um, my, my, my one of my questions for you is going to be was going to be, do you wear jewelry? And I'm going to guess. As a metalhead, this long hair guy, if you wore jewelry, I can see you doing like the skull ring and the, you know, things like that. Have you ever, what is your style? You know, the pinky ring I have, um, and this has nothing to do with um, sentimental value. My ex-wife made me a pinky ring with garnets, and that's my birthstone. I just uh, I just had a birthday a couple of days ago. So, and it, it's a beautiful ring, white gold with garnets. It's 20 years old now, so I've broken some of the stones. That's what I wear all the time, but just because it fits, and it's a beautiful ring. But it's funny that you mentioned the skull rings. I do wear a skull ring at work. Um, my <laughs> brother my brother had bought me a, a, a skull ring in some metalhead shop in Seattle for like 10 bucks and sent it to me. And I was talking to our jeweler, and I said, hey, you know, I've got this ring. It's, it's brass. It's not, you know, can we recast it in silver? So my coworkers went behind my back. Uh, this was about four years ago, three years ago, and had you know, kind of stole the ring from me and had him cast in silver. So I asked my boss, uh, Mr. Austin, I was like, uh, you know, this is a really cool ring. Can I wear it every now and again? And he said, Jose, it was cast here in shop. Of course you can wear that ring. You're, you know, kind of like an ad. You're advertising things that we can do, things that we can reproduce. So uh, up until COVID, yeah, I was wearing my rings. I've got a big skull ring that I wear, uh, sterling silver. The thing's heavy. It weighs like half a pound. Okay, maybe that's exaggerating. But it is a big scoring. And uh, up until, you know, having to wash your hands every five minutes, uh, I was wearing my rings all the time, but I have not worn them 
uh, at least since March, just because, you know, the hassle, put them on, take them off, put them on, take them off, right. put them on, and, you know, so I just kind of stop. And, and the same with, you know, I wear hoop earrings, and Mr. Austin had never, you know, depending on the store, you know, yes, you can wear them, no, you can't wear them. Um, I worked in the mall, and I, I believe that's where I met your wife for the first time. I remember that. You were, I was, yep. Yeah, I was at uh, Gordon's, I believe. And uh, they would not let us wear earrings. So, but uh, Mr. Austin was like, hey, you know, go ahead. It's jewelry. We sell jewelry. Wear your earrings. Right. And, uh, yeah, so, and then, but, again, with wearing masks, uh, every time I take off my mask to say, you know, eat or whatever, you know, there goes an earring flying off. So I, I stopped wearing my earrings. I'm just hoping my holes didn't close. But, uh, you know, you I know, haven't. I'll just them. I've only, I think I've only been in your shop a couple of times. I, I want to say about four or five years ago. When I was uh, hot on the trail of the jewelry thief, I think you remember yeah. that day. I didn't take a whole bunch of, didn't take stock of really what you guys have. You know, for somebody like me, and I think that jewelry in general, and especially for men wearing jewelry, is very much a cultural thing. Uh, I know that uh, in some cultures, uh, you know, Italian men, uh, for example, oh, yeah. I have seen um, little 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 Hispanic babies, uh, men. Uh, well, culturally, um, young ladies, especially uh, in the Mexican American and, and the greater Latin American culture, uh, have their ears pierced at a very very young age, a few weeks old. Mm-hmm. Um, right, I'm, right. I'm certainly not of any of the cultures where it's it's big for for men to wear jewelry. I don't even wear a wedding band, and it has more to do with you know my wife years ago got me into moisturizing. Uh, you know, after I shower and I, you know, I moisturize my actually my face and my eyes and my legs and all that. And I got so used to taking it off that I just it got lost and blah blah blah. Um, I will tell you, I have a friend, um, some very dear friends who used to live in town here, moved back to Gallup so she could be uh, part of her father's uh, jewelry business in Gallup, and um, they're big because of the location. Obviously, they're big on. Uh, Native American or indigenous uh, type jewelry. The only thing I know about Native American jewelry is turquoise. Um, and yeah. and turquoise. The only people I know who wear that are either Native American or really like artist types. People I know who are artists seem to seem to love, uh, or at least when I see somebody wearing it, a lot of times it's an artist. Do you guys uh, carry uh, Native American jewelry? Sell it? Uh, yes. Yeah, we do, and uh, Mr. Austin, I'm not going to say he's something of an expert of Native American jewelry, but he's been in the business over 30 years, and we, we do have a, a huge selection. And, and I always tell people, and, and you know, if you're listening to the show right now thinking, uh, he's just advertising for a store. Um, I'm trying not to do that, but, uh, you know, we carry a lot. We get a lot of that that, that comes through. Um, we don't buy jewelry from any particular company. We don't shop at Gallup. We don't shop at Albuquerque. We don't have a, a special artist in Santa Fe that makes any of our silver. All of the silver is traded in, and it's all brought in, I mean, some really, really cool stuff that was made in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, um, heavy silver pieces, a lot of turquoise. Um, so, yeah, do we carry that? Yeah, we have a lot. We uh, Christmas was pretty good for having been shut down. We had a very good Christmas, Christmas, so we're a little low on a lot of the turquoise jewelry. But uh, you know, if any questions you have, and if Mr. Austin uh, isn't busy in his office doing stuff, he always comes out to the floor anyway. You know, he'll sit there and he'll give you a history lesson. He'll tell you, hey, well, you know, this particular nation, they do, they only do silver work, and then this particular nation, they do silver work and turquoise, and this particular nation, they do silver work, turquoise, and uh, coral. So depending on where the nation was and what they were able to get from the traders and how they were trained in, in uh, silver work by the Spanish, that's what a lot of people tend to forget, that 
you know, the, the Spanish brought a lot of their artistry with them, and then uh, the, the Native American nations took that artistry and just took it to an entirely different level. Um, so, you know, culturally, do we have a lot of, uh, you know, the further north you get, you know, you see a lot more of the Native American influence here in uh, New Mexico. The further south, it's more of a Hispanic-Mexican influence. But, uh, you know, New Mexico, New Mexico itself, I think it's just everybody. It doesn't matter if you're Anglo, Native, um, Hispanic heritage. We all tend to really enjoy and love these uh, these silver pieces that are just so unique and different from, okay, diamond ring, diamond ring, diamond ring. You know, after a while, everything's a cookie cutter. But uh, the Native American tribes have, or nations, excuse me, have really taken what they've learned and just put their whole spin on it and just do just amazing, amazing pieces. And uh, uh, we have a little ring museum, and Mr. Austin, um, in the ring museum, he has this whole section de- dedicated to Native American jewelry, and, uh, you know, how each nation and what they make in silver. It's it's really, really cool. Well, now, as far as who wears it, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead and finish up, Jose. Oh, yeah. And I, my, my joke has always been you know, with Native American jewelry that uh, you can always tell who just moved to New Mexico as, a part <laughs> to, as opposed to who hasn't or who's lived here for a long time. The person who's lived here a long time will have maybe a silver necklace and maybe a silver ring. A person who just moved to New Mexico, they go and they buy every blanket and sarape and uh, <laughs> um, squash blossom. And, you know, they've got every uh, bracelet and ring and just, you know, it's like, how can you walk under all that silver when native New Mexicans and, you know, the, the, our Native American brothers, we don't wear all this, you know, so it's. It seems like people like to advertise that they just moved here by all the silver they can wear. Yeah, yeah, I know some people like that. Before we move on, <laughs> what's the? Uh, do you get a reaction, or at least a noticeable reaction? You know, you're the you're six foot nine, and you have long hair. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, you you dress appropriately, you wear a suit at work. But um, do you get a noticeable reaction out of people? Sometimes you do you ever get the the feeling that people doubt. Um, your why you're there or or your your level of knowledge um a little bit a little bit uh you know i am an imposing guy um and that's not my fault i mean when you're this big you know you're part of that what 99 percentile of the of the, the entire population um i think people are a little put off they don't know what to expect um when i was wearing my skull rings i did have a guy say well i think that's satanic and then you have to explain well look a it's a piece of jewelry B, for my culture, we don't have the fear of death that other cultures have, so it's just a ring. Um, my long hair, uh, you know, fortunately, I, I wash it and keep it clean, so, you know, <laughs> I, you. I do get compliments. <laughs> oh, your hair is so beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, but, no, once I see, you know, when I get down and I show my knowledge and, you know, that I'm not going to sit there, I, that I'm not there for security, <laughs> right. you know, people, you know, open up right away. And, I, you know, and I have customers, and we all do, like any business, that you have customers that prefer, prefer to deal with you directly and personally. So, yeah, do I have a following? A little bit. Are people a little put off? I want to say the question I ask the most is, are you, is the floor behind the counter higher than the floor out here? And then I, you know, of course, walk out from behind the counter and say, nope, it's just you. <laughs> well, you kind of gave me my perfect segue into what I wanted to get to next when you talk about, you know, your culture not uh, not, not having the fear of dying and that, that other cultures do. Now, you're you're what I would call a militant atheist. Uh, my, yeah. is, that a, is that an apt uh, description? 
Maybe not. Well, <laughs> I guess if you read my Facebook post, yes, I'm a militant atheist. Um, but if you catch me outside, I, you know, I was raised in the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, oh, hey, Southern New Mexico, <laughs> guess. Well, right? of, no, of course. Um, of course, that was going to be kind of my my next. Of course, being being this very, uh, we'll say, vocal atheist, um, the culture you grew up in is one where uh, the Roman Catholic Church is just kind of interwoven into the culture in ways that you really can't separate. And so, right, right. kind of take me through that your your experience growing up and your 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 uh, discovery that you no longer believed in anything, and and really what your family's reaction to that is. Um, disappointment. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, again, yeah, southern New Mexico, you know, my dad is from Mexico, so I've got that hardcore Mexican Catholic. Um, my mom was born here in the U.S. Her family was from, you know, they don't say they were Texans, they were Tejanos, you know. Uh, her family, my mom's side, has been in Texas since the days of Zachary Taylor. They've always been in Texas, um, even though she doesn't consider herself a Texan, but that's where her roots come from, where, you know, my great-great-grandfather used to say, Somos Tejanos. Anyway, the, the the Catholic Church, of course, is very involved in your daily life. I mean, I went to the whole thing, you know, church every Sunday. Mom forcibly enrolled us in, uh, uh, we, we don't call them Bible study classes because it's a little more, a little more than Bible study classes. Um, so every Saturday morning, instead of watching cartoons like my friends, I was at the church studying who knows what. And uh, it does take over your life. You do feel that whole, almost every fiber of your being is Catholic. And, you know, in the Hispanic sense, there is always that sense of tradition, at least one kid a generation has to be a priest. <laughs> None of my cousins wanted to be priests. One of them kind of wanted to, but he dropped out, you know, way, way early. And I thought, well, I'll take up that mantle. So I uh, didn't date in high school. Worst mistake of my life. Um, that makes two of us. I thought, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, mine you know, wasn't I was by choice. Too, so, you know, mine wasn't by was choice, that. Jose. <laughs> Say what? My, my, my not dating in high school wasn't by choice. But go on. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've got to say part of mine, too. But, yeah, so, um, you know, I thought I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to be a priest. I shopped around. Uh, you know, I was going to try and be an independent. And then I signed up with the diocese here of Las Cruces. This was under uh, Bishop Ricardo Ramirez, very nice guy. Um, so I went. I went off to Indiana, which partially kind of killed some of it. You don't want to be one of ten Hispanics in a predominantly white school in a predominantly white state. Um, the culture shock was insane. You know, every day, and and any New Mexican who you know has ever said told anybody from somewhere else that you're from New Mexico, you could be blonde-haired, blue-eyes, and say that you're from New Mexico. And the first, What's the first thing they ask you or you speak, tell you? Something about you speak English really well. Exactly. So, you know, for the first year and a half, I had to defend that I was truly an American citizen. <laughs> um, and, you know, you start, but then you, you really start learning about the beliefs and why it is, um, you know, I can only speak from the Catholic perspective, but, you know, why it is that we believe what we believe? Where does our theology come from? Where does the philosophy come from? How do we, uh, you know, maintain this connection between the Church today and Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ? So you really get inundated with all of that. But um, the school I went to, strangely enough, was a very, very liberal school. It was a very liberal Catholic school. So what happened to me coming from a 
conservative Mexican Catholic background, I go to this very liberal Anglo school, and I became even more conservative. For about two years, I was one of those angry gays need to go to hell, um, drugs are bad, blah, 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 all of that. I mean, it really affected me in a terrible way as far as it turned me into somebody who I really wasn't anymore. I, I got so, so Catholic that it really started, you know, I, I had to take a step back. At, at the end of my four years, um, I was kind of, I didn't really have a falling out with the Diocese of Las Cruces, but I started, you know, the, the liberalism of the, the, the college I went to started getting into me by my senior year. And I started realizing, you know, I one of my favorite cousins that I've known since I was a little kid is gay. How can I sit there and judge him because of what we're teaching here? I love this guy like my brother. I've known him since, I mean, you, you know, uh, uh, you've probably seen the saying or read the saying that, you know, for most of us, our cousins are our best friends until we go to school. Right. So here, here's this guy, you know, my cousin that I love, you know, with all my heart, and now I've got to condemn him because he's gay, because that's what the Catholic Church, church teaches. So I started kind of stepping back from that. Um, I want to say, gosh, it, it's hard to remember because it's, it's been so long. It's uh, 95. I can't remember if that was the year that lacrosse student had raped that girl. It was around that time. There was a lot of um, high school students, you know, being accused of rape or getting raped. And there was all this big hullabaloo. And um, in one of them, and this was just kind of a, a more of a local Midwestern thing, some big high school Catholic jock had gone after this girl raped her she got pregnant um you know she didn't want to have anything to you know she didn't want to carry the president to carry it to term but her catholic parents came down on her hard the catholic church came down on her hard and that was another thing i'm i uh, on the abortion issue and i don't want to go and get into that but i i really think that it is a very gray area and i couldn't understand why the i, I mean i could understand the teaching of why she had to carry this kid to term but at the same time it's like I could understand why she wouldn't do something like that. So it was little things like this that I started questioning, questioning, well, why this and not that? Why that and not this? And by the time I got out of seminary, um, I, had, uh, I had even tried a little, I, I had visited the Franciscans, uh, who's an order that I've always uh, respected. And basically they gave me the greatest advice. I, they could see the anger. They could see how the confliction in me. And they told me, Jose, you haven't lived. You're, let's see here, I was 22 when I graduated college. They're like, get out there and live. Get out there, fall in love, meet somebody. You know, they weren't, you know, they didn't say one way or another because these guys were out of San Francisco, so incredibly liberal guys. And uh, they're like, get out there and live. Go get a job. Sort of Before a, you make sort of a rumspringer? Is this a, sort of a rumspringer they're suggesting for you? Yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of. But it was more along the lines of find out who you are before you go and you dedicate your entire life to, you know, uh, the Franciscans would have been a little more sequestered. Before you dedicate your life to this, make sure there isn't going to be something that you're going to be missing out on. You're still a kid. Greatest advice I could have ever gotten. So I did. It's not like I ran out and started, uh, you know, I did not become a hedonist. Um Right but away. I did go out and I, I started dating, and uh, you know uh, that was fun. <laughs> it always is, but I mean, it's not like I went around sleeping around. I, I dated. I you know went on dates, something I had never really done. Talk about awkward when you're in your mid twenties and you start dating and have no idea how to do. You know, I uh, 
a lot of girls never called me back because they're just like, this guy has no idea what he's doing. And I didn't. And, uh, you know, I, arguably I should say that, uh, you know, if you find yourself single in your mid-40s, you still don't know what you're doing when it comes to dating. But it was, you know, it gave me an opportunity to, to live, to see life not only um, here in the U.S. I, not that I've traveled abroad. I would, you know, I did uh, take a really good tour of Mexico. But uh, you get to see without that religious spotlight how life is. And eventually you start seeing the religious spotlight as, you know, I really don't need that spotlight anymore. And I, it, it kind of started off as a drifting, a drifting, a drifting. And then finally, you know, especially now in my, you know, late 40s, I look back on a lot of these things, a lot of the practices, a lot of the, you know, day-in, day-out stuff of, of religion. I'm not just going to say the Catholics, but just religion. And it, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, oh, what's the word? Hypocrisy, I guess, is what really, really finally killed it for me. And I said, you know, really and truly, if for me, and I'm not, you know, people are probably turning off the radios, um, but for me, it's like, if this is your God, I don't want to have anything to do with your God. And that was it. I turned my back and walked away. And, uh, and that's been, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, maybe I sound a little militant, but it really is, especially out here when we have a country that everybody wants to say it was, you know, we were formed on Christianity. The base of the Constitution is Christianity. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, people try and say the founding fathers based this on re- religion and on Christianity. You read the founding fa- fathers, and most of them, almost all of them, have all agreed that religion, you know, having escaped Europe, having seen what religion was doing to the governments in Europe, they they wanted to have nothing to do with religion in their government. Let religion do religion's thing and let governments get, do government's thing and never the two shall meet. And now you're looking and seeing how religion is really starting to creep into our uh, our government. And, of course, the government, you know, they make the laws. And now laws are changing to protect religion. And then we've got blasphemy laws. And then we've got this. And then we've got that. And then you want, you know, you have, um, you know, some preachers preaching vitriol and preaching hate. And, you know, again, I'm going to bring up my, my, my cousin again. You know, why should I hate him just because he's gay? If there is a God, he's one of God's creations, too. Why should he have to live under uh, special rules that other people don't have to live to just to get into heaven. Well, and, I, uh, yeah, you're you're preaching to the choir on a lot of this stuff. Uh, before we move on, if I were to call up um, your mother and say, Mrs. Chabarro, uh, tell me about your feelings about uh, your son Jose and his uh, leaving leaving the Catholic Church. What would her What would she tell me? I stop tonto. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, she doesn't understand, uh, really. But, you know, she's 82. And, you know, that older Catholic where the, the, the Catholic Church really is the center of your life, um, she listens to me now. She'll ask me stuff, and I'll tell her, well, Mom, this is what they teach. This is what they learned. This is what I learned. This is what I feel. And so she's been a little more open to my uh, my atheism, but she doesn't understand it. And for some reason, she thinks that this middle-aged man is just going through a phase, and it's been a almost a twenty-year phase. So, yeah, it's not uh, not going away anytime soon. Well, it's so, interesting. Yeah, it was interesting ahead, hear okay. you hear you kind of tell uh, about your experiences growing up being Catholic, and and you know, my family is Jewish. I was raised uh, in a Jewish home, and 
Um, you know, my blood's always my blood. I don't know what I believe uh, really at this point in my life, but it is very similar. People talk about the similarities between the Catholicism uh, and Judaism, and I can see with uh, very, they're both big on ritual um, and group worship. And you mentioned, you know, going not only every Sunday morning to church, but going to, to, to Bible studies every Saturday morning. I, you know, for a kid with ADD, ADHD, it was hard enough to get my ass up out of bed and go to school all week. But then from kindergarten through eighth grade, with all the other little Jewish kids at my temple, I had to get up at the ass crack of dawn on Sunday. I say the ass crack of dawn. It was probably 7 o'clock <laughs> um, on Sunday mornings and then go Wednesday nights and study Hebrew with all the other little Jewish kids. And, you know, if, like I said, it was bad enough getting me to go to school, getting me interested in going to learn another language um, that used a different alphabet um, was, was uh, I, I'm just, I'm saying you and I were kind of on the same track with a lot of this, a lot of this stuff. But um, it, where does, where does you being a metalhead fit into all this? When did you discover, do you remember discovering heavy metal? I do. I I was in the seventh grade, no less. Um, you would have thought it would have been earlier than that. It wasn't. Um, the school I went to was predominantly Hispanic. We all, if you're from Las Cruces, you know uh, Washington or Booker T. Washington Elementary as it is now. It's always been Booker T. Washington Elementary, but uh, in my days, it was just Washington Elementary, um, and it was predominantly Hispanic. I think we had. Four blonde kids, one red-headed kid, red-headed kid, maybe uh, 20 African-American kids, and everybody else was Latino. That, well, I mean, that's kind of Las Cruces for you. Um, so a lot of the music I was listening to was what everybody else was listening to, uh, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam. Uh, gosh, I can't. It, it's been so long, and since I didn't listen to that music, you know, I was never a fan fan, but, you know, I, I, I still remember all that. And, uh, and something that... Um, you know, you're going to be familiar with being around my same age. And, you know, some of the people, like, even if they're just 10, year, 10 years younger than us, they don't really see this. But I remember we had three channels. We had NBC, CBS, ABC. So all of us were all basically listening to the same thing. If you remember the Grammy Awards from back then, um, you know, a country music star would win, and we all knew who they were. You know, we all oh, like, I listen to this guy on the radio all the time. You know, uh, you know, they'd have the most Grammys, but you knew who they were. There would be some pop singer that would have a bunch of Grammy, Grammys, and you knew who they were because we were all kind of shunted into listening. We were all, uh, uh, we were all listening to the same thing just because there wasn't a lot to listen to back then. Um, and I, I'm just saying that as far as the media outlets, you know, this is before the days of uh, MTV, obviously, the, you know, way before the days of the Internet. So, you know, the, the radio stations are here around here. Um, let's see here, the Q down in El Paso. But if you were a good Catholic kid, you didn't listen to the Q because they play that rock and roll Satan music. Um, there was some easy li listening stations. So you were kind of forced to listen to something, you know, that wasn't metal. Um, I discovered metal. This buddy of mine hadn't really discovered religion, but he he was going on some weird spiritual path, and he thought, I've got to get rid of all my CDs, or all my tapes. So this is before the days of CDs, even. And one of the tapes he gave me was Iron Maiden, Power Slave. I listened to that tape until the, the you know, the, mag, the, the, until the, the tape player wore the magnet out. Yeah, I mean, it just, I listened to that all the time and it was just something you know the, the the guitar playing the bass the drums um bruce dickinson one of the most amazing vocalists out there still to this day in his you know mid-60s just blew me away 
And I'm not going to, you know, and I was a little bit of a, well, a lot of bit of a goody two-shoes, too. So it's not like I was going li- to listen to Voivod. I wasn't going to listen to Slayer. I wasn't going to listen to Gnostic Front. But uh, Iron Maiden became my band because they were just dark enough, but, you know, musically enough that you you could get over the quote-unquote satanic lyrics. Not that they had any, um, really, other than the 666 number of the Beast. But, you know, that's one song out of hundreds of songs that they that they play that have nothing to do with the devil at all. So that was something I can listen to. And I'm going to admit this, and I'm so embarrassed to admit this. I had the first Striper tape. And, my gosh, I tried listening to one of their songs on YouTube the other day. And, yeah, was it To Hell uh, With The Devil? I lasted all Yeah, yeah. That's so funny because I knew you were – I don't know how, but I knew you were going to say that. And we actually – I think it was last, well last year. My wife and I took the kids to Disney World, and they have in they don't call it Downtown Disney anymore. It's, I think it's called Disney Springs. But there's a House of Blues, and actually the week before we were going to be there, Striper were going to play, and I was thinking, <laughs> man, we were only going a week earlier. And you know, it's funny you mention Iron Maiden because I've I mean, as long as I've known you, I know you're a big Maiden guy. That's probably hear you talk about them more than any other band except for maybe Slayer. And you you yeah. mentioned Power Slave because that's the first Maiden uh, cassette that I bought too. And I would listen to uh, Two Minutes to Midnight and Aces High, like, on repeat. Well, as much as you can repeat anything on a cassette. But, I mean, you, and I've always kind of pegged you as that kind of era of, uh, there was a documentary on VH1 that came out maybe 10 years ago called A Metalhead's Journey. It was about nine or ten part. And I think the guy who did it called that kind of like the second wave of British heavy metal with, with Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and Saxon and some of those bands. Um, but I've always thought of you mostly, other than being a Maiden guy, uh, you're a you're a big four. I mean, you're a thrash metal, um, you're yeah. a big four plus, actually. And in addition to the big four, uh, I know you're an Exodus fan and um, uh, Death Angel and a lot of those Bay Area bands. Uh, and I'm, I'm correct, am I not? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I really have to give my, uh, my props, as they say, uh, my kudos to one of my best friends. I've known him since seventh grade. His name is Johnny Alvarez. And talk about a walking music encyclopedia. This guy is just amazing. And when it comes to metal, he's my go-to guy. Hey, Johnny, who do you recommend? I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a little burned out. Who are you listening to? And then he'll say, hey, man, uh, what about these guys? And okay. And so I'll give him a listen. And it's like, damn, new favorite band. Hey, Johnny, I listened to, uh, you know, uh, believe it or not, it took me a while to get into Tool. And my buddy Johnny is a big Tool fan. Okay, well, you got to listen to this song, and you've got to listen to this album. And in this particular song, he's talking about this. Um, you know that uh, uh, Keenan, Maynard James Keenan, is, uh, is, is also an atheist. So a lot of his music reflects that. And it's not that I was looking, you know, I, I hate to go back, uh, take a couple steps back to the, the religion thing. But, you know, when you find music that kind of calls to who you are as far as, uh, you know, I think, I think we all do have that music that sings to our inner, you know, our inner hoser, my inner Lindsay, my, uh, your, uh, you know, uh, inner Jack, inner Lentro, yeah, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it speaks to you. And for me, it's always been heavy metal. In, in fact, uh, in college, my junior year in my biology class, we were, you know, you have to do your, your science experiments for class credit or whatever. And one of the guys is his experiment. He wanted to see what music did, how it would affect your your pulse rate and your blood pressure. So, uh, do you remember Enya? I do. Okay, so she was really big that year, 
And um, I want to say Metallica had recently put out Enter Sandman. So they sat us in this room, and it was really quiet. They put all the sensors on us. And first it was, you know, to have his control, we would sit 15 minutes in just silence. And then, you know, at random, he would either play 15 minutes of Enya or 15 minutes of Metallica, and then he would go through and, and rate where, where you were at. And the silence, you know, my heart rate was steady, my blood pressure was steady, and yet actually went up a little bit. Not that I, I mean, she was a beautiful woman, and I love her, I do, at least I did, you know, back then. I, I liked her music, but it wasn't my thing. When he put on Metallica, my blood pressure dropped, my heart rate, you know, my heart rate increased, but my blood pressure dropped, and he said, he goes, you were at the most in tune with yourself when you were listening to Metallica. And that, that's kind of how I see it. I think, you know, um, as far as concerts, you know, yeah, I stopped going to church a long time ago, but I, I'm not saying that I use concerts as my replacement for church, but I can see where it is, what what it is church gives to the faithful that concerts give to those of us who, you know, faithful to something else, I guess. Well, I'm right so, there with you. I'm, I'm right there with you, Hoser. And, and you know, um, just a real quick question, and you give me a good way to seg into one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, is it more the lyrics or the music that you that you find yourself uh, being in tune to? Music, music. I'm 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 right there with you, and I've, I've kind of used that as a kind of an argument when people complain. Uh, a lot of uh, boomers, if you will, complain about the the effect or the the influence that especially metal lyrics have on their precious baby children. But you know, you mentioned you mentioned something that uh, kind of brought me to something I wanted to talk about. The the last concert I went to. Um, and, and I stopped, you know, I went to a lot of club shows being from Washington, D.C. We had the 930 Club was the, you know, where most of the club club size shows were. Um, of course, I, I did a lot of when I was in college, but I graduated in 98 and moved out here. Uh, I've been to maybe three metal shows in the last 20 years. And the last one I went to was a year ago, October. And it was a band that a lot of metalheads don't, old school metalheads and people who consider themselves real metalheads don't claim. Um, and, and it's something that I, I can see where some of the criticism is. I personally kind of call it bro metal. Um, you, you, you go to their concert and you don't see the overwhelming number of people you expect to see at a, uh, at a metal show. You don't see the black t-shirts and long hair, right? right. What you uh -huh. see are a lot of guys with real short hair and tribal band tattoos and Punisher this and Punisher that. And if I haven't <laughs> given it away already, I think you can guess which band I'm talking about. And, um, five, you know, I, I'm trying to, there, there's so many anymore, but five finger I, death punch. Ah, you know, and I've always been on the fence with those guys. There, there's some things that they have that, but, but I think for us as metalheads and, and there, there's, we all have that love hate relationship with a lot of bands. And then there's like anybody else, there's extremists who are only going to listen to this. You know, um, I, uh, they, they've got some songs that I like and some songs I don't like, um, uh, you know, the, it, it could be, you know, it, it's like anybody. I try not to judge too much unless it's hair metal. Oh, my gosh, I can't stand And I can't even call it hair metal. I call it glam rock. Well, I never you know, got into the the winger, the uh, warrant. Well, uh, I've said, and I think you've heard me say this, back in the day, I don't think any self-respecting metalhead in the late 80s, early 90s would admit listening to that. But I will tell you, in the last 10 years... Um, I don't, I don't care anymore. And, and man, some of it's good music, but you know, back to five finger death punch, mm -hmm. I'll tell you, you know, one of the criticisms is all their songs sound the same. And I know what people are talking about. 
Uh, they definitely have a very unique. To me, there's a very unique. Uh, there's a very fine line between having your own unique sound and all your songs sounding alike. But right. um, you know, one of the things that I do appreciate, obviously, given what I do for a living, is their break from tradition when it comes to you know rock and roll is a very you know middle finger to the man and like you know f authority and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. you know five finger death punch have always been very very vocally uh supportive and openly supportive and have written about uh songs about their support for uh the military and law enforcement so in in one sense it's it's a, it's nice to have something that that speaks very specifically to me and a and a brotherhood uh, a family of which I'm a part um, mm-hmm. But man, I of all of all, now, of course, I'm too old. I don't. There was a time when if if I went to a show, there were two things that were going to happen. I was going to get loaded, and I was going to be on the floor all night. And and maybe the third thing is going to be very sore the next day. Now I'm too old for that. Um, I think I you know I I drank my fill of of um, spirits that night. But um, of course, there was no. I wasn't on the floor, and I wasn't dancing, and I you know wasn't sore the next day. I don't even think I had a bang over. My neck didn't hurt. But um. Yeah, that was one of the things I want to add. Now, now the next, my next question for you is, uh, if you were going to add a band to the big four, which are Slayer, Metallica, Megadeth, and Anthrax, and you were going to make them the big five, why would you add Testament? You know, I think those guys have always been underappreciated and overlooked. Um, they've been there since the very, very beginning, but I think it might be... It might fall into that um, their metal maybe just wasn't as crisp and as clean as some of the other guys, you know. But even though their music was just as crisp as you know and hard hitting, I, I I really couldn't tell you why they never have received their due um, for being around just as long, being just as influ- influential to the to the metal scene. And I've only ever seen them in concert once, and I was amazed. I it was a great show. This was two years, yeah, two years ago now. Uh, I saw them out in Vegas. Was that Brotherhood of and, the Snake, or was that before they released that? Uh, this was. They were supporting Priest, Judas Priest. So I think they were just playing some of their Everybody Knows Our Songs tour. So they weren't necessarily promoting the album. They were just there promoting Priest. You know, everyone, uh, Hoser, um, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I think if you gained like 70 pounds, you might might look a little bit like Chuck Billy. I might, but I would tower over him by about a foot and a half. He's not a very tall guy. Well, he's he's definitely packed on the pounds. Real quick, as we kind of wrap up here... um, Mm -hmm. Now we talked. You talked about Bruce Dickinson. Of course, you can't talk about that that era of heavy metal. You can't talk, certainly can't talk about Iron Maiden without talking about uh, Bruce Dickinson. If if he is the kind of the the higher pitched or you know high voice uh, high end vocalist of that older type of metal, uh, who's most likely to kind of would you tap to carry the torch from here on out? I'm going to give you a couple of choices: uh, Ripper Owens. Miles Kennedy or M Shadows? If you had to pick one of those three to kind of carry that torch, who would it be? Um, you know, I really like M Shadows. His his voice, uh, he's um, that's uh, Event Sevenfold, right? Yeah, and they're not. I mean, yeah. I dig what they do, but that's not really my thing. Although I'm, I'm yeah. with you, his uh, you can't really match his vocals. No, I mean, and he's got an incredible range. Um, Avenging the Fallen is and will always be their best album. I'm going to get a lot of these millennials saying, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. 
but Avenging the Fallen, God, that album was just so oh, powerful. It was so musical. His voice, I, I just really enjoyed. It was so different at that time from what, what else was going on in metal. They, they kind of took a, I always say, like, I, I think what has always drawn me to Iron Maiden is they had a, a very dramatic effect with their music. Right. And uh, Avenging the Fallen, they, uh, by Avenged Sevenfold, was kind of the same thing for me. It was like, man, this guy has pipes. He gets those lows and he gets those incredible highs. The music behind him is, you know, it instead of subduing his voice, um, it blended with his voice so perfectly that I, I, you know, I, I think he can keep it going. If he can, you know, he's got, you know, like anybody, his voice is going to change a little bit. Uh, Bruce has definitely got deeper as he got older. Um, but, yeah, he would be my pick as, you know, keeping that, that kind of metal, that kind of, uh, that kind of sound going, you know, well, something that I really, really appreciate. As we wrap things up, Hoser, I'm going to do something here. It's It's been almost a season and a half now on the Square Peg podcast. Uh, I have to ask you this question, and asking you the question, I'm going to have to do something I have not done uh, in a season and a half. I know my dad is very proud of me. Uh, what's the most inappropriate place you've ever yelled, F***ing Slayer? Oh, shoot. <laughs> I, I want to say it was probably uh, in a toy store. I want to say when KB Toys was still open. I was looking for, I had gone in there looking for a game for the game console I had at, had at the time. And this was, I was much younger and much more brave about doing these things. Um, after I had arranged all the uh, stuffed animals in lewd positions, um, some guy was, you know, some guy around my age was wearing a Slayer shirt. And I looked over and I was like, fuck a Slayer! There you and go. Of course, you know, moms and uh, children didn't appreciate that much, but you know. So well, I, w- I wasn't expecting it, but uh, in a in a in a toy <laughs> store in the mall, after having arranged uh, stuffed animals in lewd positions, is probably the best place to have done that. And now here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Lorenzo's Italian Restaurant has been a part of the Las Cruces community for over 25 years, supporting schools, shelters, and veterans. Even during COVID times, Lorenzo's is offering patio tent dining, delivery, curbside pickup, chow now online, and mobile app ordering. Now offering customers any signature or two-topping pizza for only $15. There's only one Lorenzo's in town, and it's at 1753 East University in Pan Am Plaza. You can call 575-521-3505. And ladies and gentlemen, just a little bit of ad lib here. If you've never had... Uh, Lorenzo's meatball you've never had a Lorenzo's meatball by the way dip their bread in some of the oil with a little bit of salt a little bit of parmesan you will not be disappointed I guarantee you Uh, Hoser Jose Chaparro Jose uh, Hoser the hitman thank you so much for being my guest I know we could go two three hours uh, just geeking out on metal but uh, you know what I got to hit on the stuff I wanted to talk about I wanted to talk about you being a jeweler uh, I wanted. I did actually learn something I did not know that you went to seminary. Uh, I knew that mm-hmm. you were raised Catholic. I knew that you're an atheist. Now I didn't know that middle part. And we got to talk about some metal. So thank you very much for being my uh, my guest. Hey, the pleasure was all mine. I uh, I've enjoyed myself. I've been smiling through this entire interview. So thank you so much. I uh, you know again. I hope I didn't lower the quality of your shows because I yeah I'm in very auspicious company. So thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. We will see you next time on the Square Peg Podcast when we interview New Mexico's own. Lauren Poole, a.k.a. Lynette LaBurgueña. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.